All right, welcome to video three of my Q&A. This is the third installment of this Q&A series that I'm just kind of winging, hoping <laughs> that I figure out how this gets organized on YouTube as, as time goes on. So thank you guys for sending in your questions. I am enjoying interacting with you guys in this way and I know it helps other people as well. So the last post that I made on social media asking you guys to send in questions blew up my email. So we took them and compiled as many as we could and that is going to be the next few videos that come out is from this recent post that I made in January. I only do five at a time. I think it's great for the time that these videos take. It also gives me time to really reflect on your questions. All right, now on to the first question. The first question is from Jasmine. How can we encourage our children to continue studying God's word without making it feel like a chore? All right, now as a mom with a eight and 12 year old, I, I feel you. And honestly, full disclosure, people would think that my kids would just be so interested in church and spiritual things. But uh, no, <laughs> this is not the case all the time. I do not have this all figured out either. But I find that there are kids who are naturally lovers of God, like my eight-year-old, uh, and, and kids who are more like how I was, right? Where they are, they're more apathetic about the Bible until they have a reason to be interested. I love spiritual things, but I got rather bored with the Bible. First, I want to say that the younger they are to start a routine of Bible study, the better. Make this space open for discussion too. Talk about the hard stuff, guys. Don't skip over it. This will set you up for success as they get older and them to be able to wrestle with these tough things. Guys, there's tough stuff in the Bible. We don't want to ignore that. We are the first people that are discipling our children. Uh, but more to the point of your question, how to study God's word without making it seem like a chore. Um, in my experience, when I get excited about something spiritual, uh, I find that my kids really feed off of this. So uh, also I would say invite them to share in what they are interested in. This is what I've done with my kids. And we have the coolest conversations. Um, and I homeschool. So this is a great opportunity for me to really learn from this as well. And other parents might have more to add to this too. Uh, but here's my take on this. And honestly, my kids take too, because I asked them what they thought about this question. And I'll share with you what they said. I asked my eight-year-old and honestly, she was no help. She's cool with whatever we learn about. And if I'm honest, she has just this natural faith and love for Jesus. So she was like dead weight when it came to this question. So now my oldest is usually the one who gives me the blank stares. So she was the golden one to ask this question to. So when I asked her about this, she emphasized that she loves when we study things that aren't repetitious and they make her think. And I think what she meant by this is, you know how like you'll go to Sunday school or you'll watch a kid's Bible program and it's like the same regurgitated Bible story over and over again about David and Goliath or about Deborah or about how Jesus fed the 5,000. You know, it's just the same stories over and over again. She does not like that. So let me give you an example of this, okay? So we just learned about biblical angels and she found that so fascinating. Learning about the Exodus and the historical facts like the archeology, span she loves that stuff. It helps it come to life for her. So in short, I'm going to suggest something that uh, maybe some parents may not be used to, but it has worked wonders for Bible study in my house. 
and that's to ask your kids what they are interested in or want to know more about. This also, by the way, is how I homeschool. And what's beautiful about this approach is that there's a natural love for scripture and God that flows from this because they're allowed to think about it and work out their gifts. So this is interesting. The Bible never says we need to find our calling, but it talks plenty about what we are gifted in and following our gifts. Now, that being said, I do think there will be times that you have to teach something they're not interested in, right? You are still steering the ship, so to speak. But I've noticed that my kids learn to trust where I'm leading them when I need to, when I've given them the freedom to learn in other areas. So theology, apologetics, Bible study, and more, they become more applicable and organic this way. And just like the birds and the bees talk, this is an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing discussion. As they grow, they'll be able to make sense of their world better and will be able to find a frame of mind to fit these biblical teachings into. The other thing I want to say is that this isn't like getting a kid to do their math homework without it being boring. Like you're wanting to train them up spiritually. And I would say, this is important, don't underestimate what might seem mundane to them now that God can use later. Because as they grow, it can make more sense to them as they get more life experience. It's like they're going through training with you. It reminds me of this movie I saw like a million years ago. It's called Behind Enemy Lines. Maybe some of you have seen it. But the main character is played by Owen Wilson. He's a Navy helicopter pilot, and he's just kind of really apathetic to his routine. He doesn't get why he has to do the same boring stuff all the time, these drills, and he just wants to leave the Navy. His commander is played by Gene Hackman, and he just sees Wilson's character as just this immature person. He's unable to understand the impact of his training or why they are doing things the way that they are doing them. Well, one day, Wilson's character is sent out on a Renaissance mission and breaks the rules and goes off course. They discover a ton of war crimes going on, and they are shot down. Wilson's character has to use his training and learns exactly why they did things the way they did. Someday, our kids are going to go behind enemy lines. They may not understand now, but it is our job to make sure that they are equipped. I loved that question. That was a great question, Jasmine. Thank you for that. Second question is from someone who wants to remain anonymous. The culture I grew up in ordains men by having all the men of the church write down one name on a piece of paper. Then they go through all the papers and whoever has his name written down three times or more is now in the lot. Then they place a blank piece of paper in a book and all who are in the lot choose a book. Whoever has the book with the blank piece of paper is immediately ordained into the ministry. All of this is based on the book of Acts. Is this biblically how we should go about ordaining men? Okay, to be honest, when I first saw your question, I had to read it like five times and even reenact it in my head to see what this looks like. Because I can tell you, for them saying that this is supposedly based on the book of Acts, it's definitely nowhere in the book of Acts. <laughs> now, the closest I could come up with was in Acts chapter one, maybe when lots were cast to replace Judas as an apostle, but that's not for ordination at all. What this is really about is what the Bible says about how men should be ordained and how leaders are chosen. So ordination 
it nowhere in the Bible was it done by some sort of random chance act, and it wasn't done by casting lots or something similar like picking a straw. They were directed or appointed. We see Paul doing this with the churches that he planted. We see this in Acts 14, 23 as well. It says that Paul and Barnabas committed leaders and elders to these churches. In Acts 6, they appointed leaders in other areas so they could focus on what they were called to do. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says that Titus was chosen by the people of the church to lead. So ordination was done by other church leaders or by the people or both. The Greek word used here means to stretch forth the hands, which was understood at the time as being a word used for voting. So we see that ordination is done by like a congregational consensus and approval from the existing leaders. And this would be an apparent thing and not by chance. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 16 and Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9, they are good rules and boundaries that God gives when we're doing this with with prayerful guidance. He gives us the freedom to choose our elders and our leaders. So with all that being said, in short, no, choosing leaders by whoever has a blank piece of paper and a book is not biblical. And I honestly, I don't know how anyone could think that it is. I would suggest that if they're saying that it's based on acts, then honestly, the best thing you could do is actually read the book of Acts it can stand up for itself. Just reading it for itself and actually looking for this will inevitably just prove it wrong. All right, question number three is from Michelle. I would like to know how to discern when a passage or verse in the Bible can be applied to us and when it shouldn't. For example, I've heard not to take the story of David and Goliath and apply it so that any obstacle encountered can be my giant. But what about when Jesus asked Peter to come out of the boat and walk on water? Can we apply that now and say Jesus is saying to us, come and take a step of faith and don't let the surrounding storms make you lose focus of me? Okay, honestly, I love this question. So Christians tend to make one of two errors when applying the Bible. Either they give too little attention to application or they give too much attention to it. Application without interpretation leaves us open to applying the Bible incorrectly. However, on the other side, when when Bible study is just reduced to an academic mental exercise, that's all it can be whenever we just neglect to apply them. It's got to be a personal book, not just an ancient Jewish historical book of antiquity. It has to be both. So two things about this. First, I want to talk about some imbalance with this. So When we read scripture, sometimes we do the opposite of what God wants us to do. He wants us to read scripture to know more about him. But what we do is treat scripture like it's about us, kind of like a self-help book, right? We read it like it's a life application manual. We read it for application and not understanding. This would have been absolutely foreign to the ancient writers. In fact, Mike Winger made a post on this not too long ago, and he said something that was very brilliant in my opinion. He said, we go from what does this mean to what does this mean to me? So what happens is, is that we tend not to draw the actual meaning from the text or wrestle with it because we find it doesn't apply to us. And we're missing the entire point of studying scripture when we do this. It's about really ultimately understanding God and not always understanding us. Now, let me put a caveat to this with my second point though. This doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't have application at all to us. 
We just need to contextually understand it properly, which many times we don't do. A lot of pastors don't do this either. <laughs> so on that note, there are a few things that I want to share about proper Bible interpretation. Uh, first, there's hermeneutics. Second is exegesis, then eisegesis, and then exposition. So hermeneutics is just the fancy word for the, the science and art by which the meaning of the biblical text is determined. Exegesis is what we do when we determine the meaning of the biblical text in its historical and literary context. Exegesis is the actual interpretation of the text. Hermeneutics is deciding how that will be done. Eisegesis is the opposite of this, okay? It throws all that out the window. It basically brings meaning to the text that is not there. It ignores the context historically and grammatically and forces meaning and interpretations that would never fit the intentions of the author or God for that matter. Now, next we have exposition, which might sound familiar to some because some pastors practice what's called expository teaching. Now, this is basically a communication of the meaning of the text with its relevance to present day hearers. So exegesis is understanding the biblical text and expository teaching is the communication of the meaning of that text. And for the record, I wish a lot more pastors would practice expository teaching. So with all that being said, with this application, we can glean from scripture how and if it has any application to us at all. In other words, we have to understand who wrote it, why they wrote it, who they wrote it to, uh, the inspiration that culture had, and what prompted the writing. And then we take that and interpret it how it's supposed to be interpreted, whether it applies to us or not. Because the point of getting into scripture is to worship God, to know him better. And here's the beautiful thing. When we know him better, suddenly there are things that make sense in life and why things happen the way they do. And we're a part of that in a beautiful way. But as I said before, the Bible is not a self-help book. We understand the world and reality better when we understand the Bible. So in light of this, why wouldn't any Christian read the Bible this way? Greg Kokel, who's somebody that I really respect and admire, he says, never read a Bible verse. And what he means by that is when we read a verse to understand it, we should probably read 10 verses before and after to really understand its surrounding context. This allows scripture to interpret scripture, but it's hard to let that happen when we don't know what the rest of scripture says to interpret a verse that we are reading. Also, really fun fact, there are actually no verses in the Bible. They were added to help us navigate the text. So biblical hermeneutics protects us from misapplying scripture so that nobody can twist it. Sometimes it's applicable, right? But that's only because we've been responsible and handling the text to know when it is and when it is not. Now, with that being said, you mentioned David and Goliath. When proper hermeneutics are applied, there's just simply no way, no way that this verse is somehow metaphorically about us thousands of years later. We anachronistically put ourselves in the Bible all the time. When there's like a symbolic interpretation that's forced into the text to make it apply to us, this is obviously misreading the text. And this happens way too often today. But let's use your second example of Peter walking on water just to show how, like how this could look like and what this means. I think that we've kind of come to see storms as symbolic to our life problems. But at that time, 
I don't think life problems were what the disciples were worried about. In this case, they were afraid of a literal storm, sure, but I think they were more afraid of dying. <laughs> they neglected the fact that they had God in the boat with them. So knowing that God is with us, even when we're afraid, I think we could absolutely apply in our lives. And second, I think it's important to realize here that Jesus isn't talking to us, right? He was talking to Peter. However, I don't think it's wrong to consider that Jesus asks his followers to have faith in him. Contextually speaking, this is perfectly fine. I also don't think it's wrong to use Peter as an example for how fickle our faith can be because we are, after all, humans. But let me give you an example on where I think people go wrong here. Because again, some people just miss the overall point of the passage. I have heard people and pastors use this passage to say that Jesus wants us to have simple blind faith and believe for whatever we want without wavering. This is eisegesis. This is bad application. If someone were to take this scripture and apply it to a relationship, health, getting married, a job, or anything else, and are told that this scripture and others teach that if we believe and have enough faith, just walk out, just walk out and trust Jesus, keep your eyes on him, and no other obstacles to deter you from that, like don't focus on the storms, have your eyes on Jesus, then they're saying that we're able to have the same command over our circumstances. You'll be able to alter reality for a positive outcome, no matter what it is. That can lead to some pretty bad outcomes. And then people, what I've seen is they end up getting angry at God because this ultimately fails and is just unsustainable. So when we read it, this is about Jesus displaying a miracle to show that he is the son of God. In fact, this was probably the first clear and plain acknowledgement of this because we see that the disciples worship him afterward. Norman Geisler wrote a small book called To Understand the Bible, Look for Jesus. And I love that title because it's so true. It's a very concise way of expressing my point. You're not always going to go to the Bible and understand your life better. The point of going to the Bible is to understand God better. And when you understand God better, you understand your life better. So that's a long answer. And I could actually say a lot more about this, but I really hope it helps. I actually highly recommend a book called Bible Basic Bible Interpretation. Yes, that's what it's called. <laughs> it's by a man named Roy Zuck. And another book that I recommend is called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Both of these books and more uh, I had to read in seminary and they're very good about this exact topic. You will find more information about those books in the description below if you would like to check them out. All right, question number three. I believe that this name is pronounced Urs. I believe, I'm not sure. I'm sorry if I got your name incorrect. Uh, the question is, the pastor of the charismatic church my wife attends recently recommended listening to music in a certain frequency. Sol Solgafelgio? I don't know how to pronounce that either. Uh, frequencies. It sounds familiar though, because of music class a million years ago. Such as 285 hertz, I believe that's the HC, what that stands for. 396 hertz, 417 hertz, and so on. I know music teachers have a twitch in their eye right now. I apologize. They listen to these certain frequencies in order to be tuned to God's frequency, get healed, and being able to pray for hours in tongues. He also explains that these frequencies are encoded in Numbers chapter 7 and are therefore biblical. 
Is this frequency music thing dangerous or unbiblical? And should or how can I tell my wife about this? Okay, red flags. Red flags everywhere. This reminds me of something I would read straight out of Physics of Heaven from Bethel Church. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that book, it's basically an apologetic for why they believe that we need to go into the new age and redeem it for the church. It's a book endorsed by the leaders at Bethel Church and NAR hypercharismatic church, as I'm positive some of you know. Now look, I'm gonna say this, I love my charismatic brothers and sisters. You teach me a lot, all right? I think this is a whole other realm though. This kind of stuff is just so bad and I'm sure a lot of my charismatic brothers and sisters would join arms gladly with me and agree with me on this. In this book, they talk about music frequencies in a similar way, but so did other new age books on my shelf. And by the way, it makes you wonder and question the motive to Bethel's music. So to Bethel, their music is more than just worship. In their view, you're joining them in altering reality through musical frequencies by adding your voice to their declarations. So food for thought. So in the new age, the idea for how these frequencies worked was that we were all on this spiritual frequency, a certain spiritual frequency, depending on our thoughts and our feelings. I was taught that we want to be on God's frequency of love, which was the highest frequency of them all. If I could do this, then everything else on this frequency would come into my life. But the same works for all the other frequencies, including negative ones. Whatever frequency I'm on supposedly would mirror the blessings in my life. Either way, you're taught that you can alter reality. So not only is this unbiblical, but this is impossible. This sounds absolutely exhausting. The idea, at least in the new age, is to become mindless so that it creates the illusion of results. You're only supposed to pay attention to the God or love frequency and its results and ignore everything else. This is not good though. This can cause people to go to a really disillusioned headspace at the end of the day and it can really wreck their relationship with God. And it doesn't surprise me that this pastor would suggest this method for healing, considering the ties that they have to the new age at this point. Okay, and, and furthermore, he says that these frequencies are supposedly encoded in number seven. And again, I just have to scratch my head at this. This is exactly what people do who twist the Bible and they read their own eisegetical symbolic interpretation into the text to force an outcome. Here's the thing, anyone can do this to come out with any interpretation or meaning that they want. They come to the text with an agenda instead of drawing the actual meaning from it. We just talked about this, right? Now, number seven is about the offerings at the dedication of the tabernacle. I read the whole chapter and all this chapter is simply describing is, is what the people are bringing as offerings to the tabernacle. I tried to look for some sort of symbolic meaning. It's literally saying, who brought what, how much, how much it weighed, what day it was on, and so on and so forth. I have no idea how anyone would get that conclusion from this chapter unless they are misled, misleading, or eisegetically looking for symbols that aren't there just to make it fit their beliefs. Beyond that, I will actually take this a step further. Let's say that he misspoke and gave the wrong chapter. I submit that nowhere in the entire Bible are spiritual frequencies taught. The origin for this teaching did not start with the Bible. 
but with occultic teachings. Now, by using his own logic against him, I could say anything is encoded in the Bible to fit my view. This is a tactic I've noticed from certain religious leaders that they have either adopted or created to try and persuade people that something is biblical when it's simply not. And a pure reading of number seven simply debunks this. It's just amazing to me how much bad theology can be debunked by just reading our Bibles. But I'm starting to just not believe that they want people reading the Bible this way because it seems less fantastic to simply read to understand. They want you to read to experience and get some knowledge that only the spiritually elite have access to. Honestly, I am so sorry that your wife is being taken advantage of like this. I'm so sorry this is happening to her. As far as trying to tell her, I suppose that would depend on her and if she's wanting to discuss it. Sometimes I find that uh, people don't wanna hear anything other than a positive affirmation of what they already believe, especially when they believe their health is at stake. If she's up for it, I would take her through the chapter tell her about the occultic ties to this and probably should look for another church. I would also ask my viewers as well to please join me in praying for her health, for you guys, for this couple, and also the pastor and the congregants at this church. All right, last question is from Corey. I was wondering if you could answer how we as Christians should handle conspiracy theories. Should we believe in them and go down rabbit hole of truth? Or should we simply believe God's truth that surpasses all? If we as Christians do believe conspiracy theories, then should we debate it and bring it up in our sermons or church groups? Okay, I actually have a lot to say about this. <laughs> now, I've got to say, I know that there's going to be a lot of people in the comments ready to yell at me, um, but I'm going to give my honest opinion about this because my service to others requires this. And if I need to be somebody's emotional punching bag in the comment section for me being honest uh, to the best of my ability, so be it. <laughs> All right, bad theology hurts people, and so do bad conspiracies. And this is actually a little personal for me because I have someone close to me who has gone off the deep end in conspiracy theories, and they have never been the same. I have watched them mentally, spiritually, and emotionally deteriorate before my eyes because of the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories that have consumed them. In my mind, they have just kind of disconnected from reality, but in their mind, they are they are in the know. They know everything and we are the ones that just have no idea what's going on. Now, I will say, okay, I think there are two levels of this. All right, I'm addressing the Christians at this point, not other people, because we're called to a higher standard. I'll start with the first one, which is the extreme side of this, where it's it's dangerous and distracting. I'll call this the spiritual red herring conspiracies, which are a lot of them, if not most. So the short answer is, of course, God's truth needs to be forefront of everything. My number one issue with conspiracy theories has to do with epistemology. In other words, the way that some of them deal with truth and knowledge is irrational. If you notice, my channel is not focused on conspiracy theories because most of them, in my opinion, are just spiritual red herrings. I have done one video about a misinterpreted passage that a lot of conspiracy theorists have taken out of context in the book of Revelation. That's about it though. I know a lot of YouTubers love the views that conspiracy theories bring. So the bigger and better, 
and it really messes up some people. So honestly, for me, I, I believe they're just a, a big distraction. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is that I find that a lot of Christians preach conspiracy instead of the gospel, and it leads nowhere. Like, it, okay, we, we didn't go to the moon. So what? People are dying and going to hell, and we're going to spend hours warning people about JFK's supposed assassination? I honestly think the devil loves wasting our time, sending us a, on a path that leads nowhere because it distracts us from the gospel, the thing that really, we really need to be focusing on. Now, what I find uh, for a lot of people is their faith in God is contingent on these conspiracies somehow. And that's odd to me. I've personally seen people lose their minds, faith, friends, and even some of their sanity because of the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories. They're stuck in this really toxic mindset that can be honestly kind of fanatical at times and they can be really hard to talk to and make sense out of then honestly a conspiracy is a pretty lousy one if everyone knows about it <laughs> and to make it worse sometimes they misuse the bible to back it up so it drags god through it making christians seem unintellectual and, and naive and I just, I don't know. I don't agree with that. Now, I know I've said a lot about this first group. I honestly have a lot to say about it. Uh, I want to make sure that I'm coming across as being firm, but fair. I definitely think that there is some correction that needs to happen there. I do see them as my brothers and sisters in Christ, but this is what I think. I think we need to look at this to do better though, especially to further the gospel. And I've mentioned this before, but discernment is not the same as paranoia. Now, the second group um, that I think would fit into maybe like a conspiracy theorist type group, I actually wouldn't place them in the same category. And I wouldn't even call them conspiracy theorists at some point. You have conspiracy theorists who believe based more on like a confirmation bias, patterns, some of it's not even grounded in reality or in a proper understanding of scripture. But then you have people who see something isn't right and speak up about it but they don't have some sort of like sci-fi results from their logic. You have the conspiracy watchdogs on it, right? But they're always throwing darts. They're just hoping that they get closer near the target and that's good enough for them. But when normally rational people start seeing something wrong and, and it's grounded in reality, I think that's the opposite of a conspiracy theory. Like at some point, it's just not a theory anymore. And a great example of this is a man named Carl Tykrib. I think Carl is a great example of an intellect who has done the work. He did the research and he wrote a very compelling and thick book <laughs> about it called Game of Gods. I highly recommend it, by the way, because I think he does a really good job of hashing out things that we see today that have been forthcoming for decades now. And Carl weaves that together really well. Now, I actually have a lot more to, that I could say about this. Uh, I hope that it does help you kind of formulate an answer to your question. I find that a lot of people are attracted to conspiracy theories because they're fantastic. We are just, we humans love this stuff. We love things that seem mysterious and have secret knowledge, or we like to be in the know. And I, I we are so attracted to that. I see it just not a lot of good coming from it. But th these are my thoughts. I'm probably going to get it in the comments. Uh, but I think that this is uh, probably, hopefully, a healing thing to hear for many people. All right, so that's the list of questions for this video. There's going to be more coming, so stay tuned. If yours didn't make it for here, maybe it did for the next ones. 
Let me know what you think in the comments. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you think I missed something? Let me know down below and be sure to check out the description for more information on these topics.